Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we have Pedro the Lion performing live at the Goose Island Tap Room. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, Jim and I have two new albums to review by Horse Girl and Julia Jacklin. That is a little bit of the song Billy from the first full album by the Chicago group Horse Girl, Greg. I don't think we've had as much excitement in Chicago about a signing from Matador Records, mm-hmm. the storied uh, indie label, uh, since Liz Fair. Right. <laughs> and yet, these women, these three young women, are at a much different point in their lives and career than good old Liz was. Uh, They met in high school. Uh, Nora Chang, Penelope Lowenstein, and Gigi Reese uh, started playing music together really young. They're part of this burgeoning, exploding scene of uh, teen indie rock bands in Chicago that are making a lot of noise nationally and, dare I say, internationally. They recorded this album at Steve Albini's legendary electrical audio with producer John Agnello, who's worked with Kurt Vile, The Breeders, Dinosaur Jr., and uh, it's making some noise. We're getting social media notices, uh, you know, hey, when are you going to review Horse Girl? When are you going <laughs> to re- yeah, Well, it was the summer. We were busy, <laughs> all right? So the album is called Versions of Modern Performance. Greg, let us play a track, and we'll dive in with our opinions. This is called Live and Ski by the Chicago Trio Horse Girl on Sound Opinions. That is Live and Ski from the Horse Girl debut album, Versions of Modern Performance. Um, you know, you mentioned Liz Fair at the top, and it's uh, appropriate because the band, Horse Girl, is very much, even though they are children of the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. They are living, their heads are in the 90s and 80s. I mean, yeah. they would have been a, a band that would have sounded, their sound is very much, uh, would have fit right in. With, yeah. with the uh, alt-rock scene of the early 90s. Uh, and, 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 I'm, and that's not a diss. I mean, it, to the point where they, they're, the band that they love the most, Sonic Youth, that they say, you know, Agnello was a producer for them, uh, mm-hmm. Steve Shelley and Lee Ronaldo, who happened to be two former members of uh, Sonic, Sonic Youth, Youth yeah. both play on this record on a couple of tracks. Um, so their, their hearts are in the right place. They have absorbed these sounds, and 
you can hear, you know, references to Sonic Youth. There's references to to pavement. There's My Dinosaur Jr. Valentine. Shoegaze, of course. Again, you know, we've mentioned this in the past and in recent shows. Shoegaze is uh, very much in the in the air when when yeah. it comes to guitar music of the present day, uh, which is an interesting factoid but what it, this doesn't sound like an imitation to me you no. know there, there are bands who purely imitate uh their loves uh horse girls doing something a little bit different I, even down to the way they approach sonics there's a sort of a scruffiness about this record mm-hmm. uh it's not too polished despite the fact that agnell is producing it you know in chicago uh, it's not garage rock, it's basement rock. You know, yeah. garages are too cold in the winter to record in. you got to go to your basement. <laughs> a lot of this music is made there. Yeah. This, ba- this record sounds like it was made in a basement. In a good way. There's a charm to that. The lyrics are, are, are elliptical. They're, they're not really letting you into their world. Like, what are they going on about? They're leaving clues, hints, yeah. you know, uh, but they're not spelling it out, which is, I think is kind of cool. The hooks are the same way. They're kind of subtle, but they're there. Uh, a song like Dirtbag Transformation. I love the way those wordless <laughs> vocals sort of br- bring in the deadpan count-off in The Fall of Horse Girl. That guitar riff in Anti-Glory, the way that sort of rides the waves of bass and drums and then sort of starts that stabbing, like you're being punched out in an alley. You know, that yeah, stabbing, yeah, yeah, yeah. stabbing sound. They've got something going on here. I don't think this is anywhere near where this band can go if it continues to play. Right now, they're kind of saying, here's where we're coming from. Here are our sources. We're paying tribute to our influences. They're doing it in a really charming way. And I'm looking forward to more music from from Horse Girl because I think this is a fine start. I love when you get so enthusiastic. I didn't want to interrupt <laughs> you there. Well, you know, Chicago, you got to be proud of your 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 kin, right? I, I don't <laughs> care where they came from. Um yeah, it, it's it's absolutely look, look. They sing in uh, homage to bird noculars. I love these <laughs> titles, right? They are intentionally doing that Robin Hitchcock absurdist, mm-hmm. uh, obscurist, elliptical thing. They sing in that song, "Fall into my wormhole." Oh yeah, I'm yeah. there. <laughs> Thank you. I listened to this album so many times on repeat, and then I shuffled it, and it's still—it's just—it—it is a sonic invitation, and there there is meaning uh, on occasion. <laughs> you know, don't let them see you uh, is a recurring phrase in the fall of Horse Girl. There's uh, there's some things that capture the dangers of being a young woman in this time and the warnings but also the joy dance 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 with me you know mm-hmm. they sing at another point and um, they're loving it in that wormhole these sonic constructions so so yeah you, you know we made the liz fair comparison just because of the label liz was all about lyrics mm-hmm. you know this is a band where all three young women do everything together you're right their their potential is limitless but even if they broke up tomorrow and decided they wanted to make real money and and go to business school <laughs> this album is a a gem that should not be overlooked. Been stripping right down, staring at my own reflection. Ever since I was 13, I've been pulled in every direction. Such a good student of all that conflicting advice. Go put ice in your mouth, let them slap you about. Go on, choke yourself out. Believe no room for doubt that you are forever. 
That is a little bit of Ignore Tenderness from Julia Jacqueline's new album, Pre-Pleasure, the third studio album from the singer-songwriter from Australia, originally from Sydney, now living in Melbourne. Uh, she also plays in another band, uh, Fantastic Furniture, that has not made nearly uh, the impact that the solo stuff uh, has done, but that music is pretty great, too. I, I suggest you check it out. It's a different side of what she's on to. Uh, debut album in 2016, Don't Let the, the Kids Win, uh, made an immediate impact. Uh, Crushing in 2019 was the record where things really started to take off. An incredibly nuanced uh, record. Quiet is the new loud, Jim, you know? Uh, Sometimes, yeah. There's some singer-songwriters uh, right now that are making amazing records and she's you know she's going to get comparisons to people it has gotten comparisons to a number of her peers who are making great records right now you know whether it's a phoebe bridgers or a mitski or lucy dacus mm. um but the point being that she is a distinctive uh, vocalist and songwriter and a lyricist so everybody was anticipating pre-pleasure uh coming out this is when an album she co-produced with uh, Marcus Peckin, who was also worked with the National, put uh, a rolling keyboard at the head of the uh, production decisions instead instead of her usual guitar. Here's a track from the new record before we review it. It's called I Was Neon from Julia Jacqueline's Pre-Pleasure on Sound Opinions. That is I Was Neon from Julia Jacqueline. The album is called Pre-Pleasure. It's her third studio album. Uh, Greg, in that song, uh, she sings, I quite like the person that I am. Mm-hmm. Am I going to lose myself again? Uh, the cover art and many of the songs uh, find her standing in front of the mirror and considering the person she is and wants to be and mistakes she's made in the past, partly con- confessional, partly observational, uh, all of it very, very smart. You compared her to some of her peers uh, doing really interesting uh, singer-songwriter work today. I would say, you know, her influences loom large and range wide. On something like Two in Love to Die is almost a Joni Mitchell uh, stripped down kind of thing, right? But at other points, uh, we get like full-on Fleetwood Mac, Mm. you know, almost orchestral at times. She's kind of all over the map in that sense. Uh, Even even a little Burt Bacharach, Mm. kind of like uh, sing-song Space Age Lounge music, right? It's fascinating. I I love this album. I love the sonics. I love the lyrics. I do love her voice. If you tend to sort of let this wash over you and as background music, you may miss some of its brilliance, but the way she underplays uh, a lot of things, I think, are a real key to her appeal. She's a very smart songwriter, and as you said, she, you know, this whole whole idea of sort of looking at herself in a very honest fashion. A lot of this album's about overcoming your insecurities. 
You yeah. Know, she's a woman in her early 30s, and she's reassessing everything. You know, her relationship with her mom. That's yeah. a topic of one of the songs. Her upbringing, Catholic school. You yeah. know, like uh, we the relate. impact yeah. that, ha- that has and that lingers on uh, well, and, no matter how long uh, you are apart from You know, it. as a woman in popular music, you know, how do I present myself and be myself uh, sexually but not pander? I mean, I, I love that line, be naughty but don't misbehave. Yeah. <laughs> The way she talks about relationships that didn't even pan out, there's yeah. sort of a, an adult maturity about that whole thing. And, and, and again, the songs have their hooks. The one we played, I, I, love, I love that song, and it's one of the more upbeat ones. Even the way the arrangements are, are crafted, End of a Friendship, which is the end of the record, mm-hmm. uh, the song I was just referencing, uh, where she talks about this, you know, her partner telling her the things she doesn't like about me. Right. And I get it. You know, we weren't meant to be together. Uh, the way the strings sort of uh, pull that song to, to a conclusion, yeah. there's almost like a calm, like, I accept this, I'm moving on. I'm right. able I, to do that now. Do you, you hear know? what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, that like Bacharach and Dionne yeah. Warwick couldn't have done strings you better. You know, it, it's, a, it's an apt uh, comparison. Oh. Julie Jacqueline's just a gem. We're, we're fortunate to have her making music. Reg, we neglected to say Julie was on the show back in 2019, That's right. episode 713. Uh, so we're fans, but we want to hear from you. Share your thoughts in a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, and we may play it on the show. Coming up, we'll head to the Goose Island Tap Room in Chicago for a live session with Pedro the Lion. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Please stop Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. That is a little bit of the song Foregone Conclusions from Pedro the Lion's 2004 album Achilles Heel. Even in that short clip, you can learn a lot about band leader David Bazan. For one, you can hear that he loves the Beatles and came up alongside uh, groups like Death Cab for Cutie in the late 90s. But unlike Death Cab and many of his, this word, emo peers... Pedro the Lion's songs tackle questions of religious faith and doubt. So the band built up a following that included many young evangelicals. Um, As Bazan moved away from evangelical Christianity, uh, for philosophical reasons he explains really well, he kept fielding prying questions from fans in conversations uh, that sometimes went nowhere, like the one in the song Foregone Conclusions. After Pedro the Lion's fourth album, Achilles' Heel, in 2004, Bazan retired the band name for 15 years. 
During that time, he made five albums under his own name, but in 2019, he resurrected, it's a good word, Pedro the Lion for this project. That's right, Jim. Bazan has embarked on an extremely ambitious project, five albums about places where he lived while growing up. Uh, the first was uh, Phoenix in 2019, and the second is Havasu, released in early 2022. Uh, when he brought his band to the Goose Island Tap Room, I started by asking him why he brought back the name Pedro the Lion for this project. The band name, I think it's just a long process of understanding what I do and why and what is a good brand name for it. It took me a long time to figure it out. I have heard that people occasionally call you David Pedro. Yeah, I get called, <laughs> I get called Pedro a fair amount. So this is the second album, the new record, Have a Sue, mm-hmm. of what you're planning on being sort of a tour through all the places where you grew up. First one was Phoenix, mm-hmm. and now Havasu. Um, what else is on that list? And take us back. You, you moved around a lot before you, you've been in Seattle now, a very long time. Yep. But uh, as a kid, you were moving a lot. Yeah, we moved around. Um, I've lived in Seattle for 30 years now. Mm. and um, But before that, we lived in several towns. And um, yeah, it just has been a helpful thing for me to do, to go back and revisit, you know, all this stuff that happens to you as a kid, sometimes you don't have the time and space to unpack it before adulthood kicks in, you know. And uh, this is a way for me to kind of do some of that. I, I got to say, Havasu is just brilliant. You know, all the songs are great, but especially when you're doing that, I'll use an English professor term, mm-hmm. that Bildungsroman, that coming-of-age story mm. uh, about growing up, you know, and it was on the last album, too, Yellow Bicycle, oh, right? Yeah. And my first drum set, like my, my favorite song of all time, right? That's Takes crazy. me right back to being 13, convincing my mom I, I need a drum set in the basement. That's awesome. It's almost as if you could be writing a novel or, or an autobiography. I think... Music is the only way that I'm able to organize my energy in in that way. Something about the structure of it just helps me put things down. Um, I don't know if I'd have a way of getting it out otherwise, but Mm. I'm glad that it's resonating like with that kind of detail. That mix of naivete Mm -hmm. and ambition, and I know everything Mm because I'm, you know, 12. That's right. (laughs) It's just perfect. Why don't we play a song but yeah. without further ado, and then we'll, we'll chat. We have lots to chat about. Okay. What are we going to hear, David? Uh, this is the first track off of Havasu called Don't Want to Move.
I see you. The storm blows into a flood, then disappears. A thirsty desert floor drinks it in. Miles down below the skin, endless hidden reservoirs. What difference would it make if I could be real with you? From Pedro the Lion, the uh, new album, Havasu. Um, Havasu sounds like a god-awful town. <laughs> Don't want to move. There's a strange magic to that place that I discovered. And then whenever I bring people there, it, I feel like it strikes us all similarly. Where it is kind of, there's like a crappiness to it that maybe grows on you. But there's a magic to the, like the mountains and the water. And the, it's, it's a... It's a confusing place, especially as a teenager. <laughs> I, I'm struck by the, the the album. You know, you're in that mindset of that 12 year old you. Yeah. Uh, that's got a. That's an interesting place to to put yourself in. You're writing when you're 12. I can only speak for myself. You're extremely direct. Like mm -hmm. it's almost like you have no yep. filter other yep. than just what's happening to me right now. How do I feel about this that's happening to me? Yeah. And you know, being a 12-year-old male, you're selfish as hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it's it's like you're in you're channeling that that same kid. You know, I think that we all have different ages where like kind of traumatic things happen or things that we need to process, but there isn't any space to do it and I think that was a big year for me in terms of you know, things 
breaking that never kind of went back together in terms of my own uh, internal life. And so I, it was really good to go back and just kind of parent that kid in yeah. a way that I needed to have been done then that no one could have known, you know. My 12-year-old self who needed some healing really appreciated it, I felt. Mm. Like it, mm. it seemed like you needed a decade, few decades perspective yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah, to even be able to admit the masking and things that was, you know, I'm, I don't know if everybody's the same, but so many people I think are masking our emotions and 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 feelings that were happening and I was doing it at pretty hardcore then and so just mm-hmm. to to go back and even admit that I needed some decades removed from it. Mm-hmm. David you've talked about this in in many interviews but your uh, personal journey of faith mm-hmm. it was a hardcore Christian upbringing you mm-hmm. know at some point notably on Control but mm-hmm. but other Pedro albums you began to question some of the hypocrisies uh-huh. of people who profess to be Christians but have no empathy for people no love yeah. and all judgment yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that your journey um you know I was born and grew up in the subculture of evangelical Christianity and um you know my parents and many of the people that I know in that world still are such kind giving, caring people. And from the time I was a kid, you could just see discrepancies, basically. And um, I think the process of each of us becoming ourselves requires us to kind of break out of whatever the structure that we kind of came from. And in that case, evangelical Christianity really wants to keep you. You know, Mm -hmm. it's really set on you not changing your mind about any of it or questioning or questioning i just went through that process like so many people did Um, but i think yeah particular moment in evangelical christianity like the 80s and 90s i think it was an extra special trip for for people who were born there and were going to find themselves outside of it it was a it was a real struggle to break free and to be feel allowed to think for myself within myself i mean most of the guilt and shame stopped coming from external sources of authority and just were, they lived inside me, you know? Yeah. And so that was the, the biggest part is just undoing all of that and being able to be myself and think the way that I naturally do without the guilt and the shame. Mm. Well, control hit people so hard in 2002. And you're talking about uh, the evangelicals and, and Bush at that point oh, and, yeah. and the wars that are happening in, in the Middle East. going back and listening to it now it's like this is a prescient roadmap to even worse in the trump era we will forgive adultering lying philandering mm-hmm. uh you know we'll forgive everything he's one of us yeah wow that's a really scary turn that happened yeah yeah what uh, insights do you have into how that squares how people can support clearly non-Christian values from our leaders, but but still profess faith? That's the big question that I'm trying to collect data on, because how are these kind-hearted, gentle people that I grew up with able to be co-opted into something that is kind of clearly evil, you know? Yeah. I don't know, um, but 
on this series of records, it's some of the things I'm hoping to explore um, mm -hmm. and make some sense of for myself. I, I do think it comes down to like a respectability kind of game that it's easy to play. Why Christianity the, that I grew up with is so easily distorted is it becomes a list of respectability kind of politic guidelines. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, but, mm -hmm. you know, as long as you love the Lord. Like there's these kind of when you're just holding up respectability kind of rules, it's an authoritarian kind of yeah. thing. And and it's selfishness and fear, you know. Mm. Uh, and authoritarianism mm. really goes well with selfishness and fear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know people who, when it got to Trump, they were just kind of like, uh-oh, like I've chosen the wrong sort of team or, or whatever. Yeah. And people do realize it, but not everybody, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. A lot of performers that I've talked to were raised in households like that. Just going up and performing anything that wasn't like a you know praise the Lord kind of song mm -hmm. kind of song was was kind of like it was really very difficult. How were you able to overcome that personally and start writing songs the way you did? Yeah, I wasn't allowed to listen to quote unquote secular music when I was a, like a kid. I, no radio. Like I heard popular songs on commercials basically. Like. The Pepsi version of Billie Jean was the one that, I, <laughs> that I knew. Uh, and then in high school, I started being allowed to listen to a wider uh, variety of things. And I had the support of my family in a certain way, like my parents and extended family. They loved the idea of me doing music, and they were very, very supportive. Because when I first started making records, I was uh, like considered myself a Christian that maybe they saw it as a part of me sort of sharing my my views and myself in a way, even though the music was a little bit more questioning. And I think that my family has struggled with it in the wake of me not believing anymore, you know, a decade or more ago. And um, it's a major head trip for anybody who grew up in that world because it's so driven down deep into your psyche right. and I know the struggle for me in breaking free of that, and there's a conflict within the people that I know who are believers about what I'm doing. They're not sure how to categorize it. We should get another song if you guys can uh, play one for yeah, us. Set yeah, set it up. Tell us what you're going to... This is a uh, first drum set. Oh, all right. We're going <laughs> <we're gonna laughs> to do it in this stripped-down way. Now, i got to interject here, listeners. My excitement about first drum set was so electric that it must have short-circuited mm. our sound system during our live recording because we had a technical problem for the first few seconds of the song. Ah! We salvaged it as best we could, and it is such a great song, we think it still works. Here is Pedro the Lion performing first drum set live at the Goose Island Tap Room in Chicago. I played the clarinet since fourth grade Thank you. 
saxophone But the band director shook his head Forget it I'm up to my ears In tenors and altos And you're solid on the clarinet But well with tears in my eyes I looked up at my dad Who looked back at the band director Don't you have any other openings? He replied, I could use another drummer. I looked at my dad, and he looked at me. I nodded my head. Drum set by Pedro the Lion. What a what a fantastic song. The dialogue 
with the band director and your dad's like almost reluctant, right? All of this, the writing is just perfect. But the key line, right? Without my first drum set, I'd be dead, right? The power of music uh, to a young person to be transformative, to be an escape, to be transcendent. Um, you still feel that way at your, your lordly, less hairy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my new crown. Um, We're all getting old. We got older really quick the last two years, yeah. all of us. It definitely still touches me in that in that way. And maybe more than ever, uh, or maybe it's sort of back to where it was when I was that age uh, at this point. Um, yeah. I mean, for you guys, it, it must. Obviously, you do this work and this show, and it really, it's like on-demand musical energy like we have access to. It's just so crazy. You can just play the same song over and over again. <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. I love it. 1995 is when you started doing this. Mm -hmm. We are all heading in on three decades <laughs> yes. of being on the road, of making records. Uh, you were one of the first people I knew of that were doing living room shows, mm -hmm. which is sort of what we have today at yep. the Goose Island Tap Room. It seems like you've been a real thinker uh, outside the box on how to sustain a career as mm -hmm. an independent musician. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and that's just, you know, necessity. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it kicks your butt and then you've come up with an idea. Um, and house shows have really saved my sanity, too. I mean, playing in rock clubs is what I did always, and I love it. Um, but there's something about playing these sort of more intimate places and free from the music business, essentially. It's, it's nice to be interacting with fans, like, outside of the structures of the music business. You do bring that living room vibe to you when you play a club, you know, and, and the Q&As are a big part of that. Yeah. I only see that at punk rock shows. Like, you never see Robert Plant go, that's a question. <laughs> but, like, you know, uh, Bob Weston of Shellac would, yeah. would stop a show. and Kind of stole it from those guys, actually. Oh, yeah. It's a different spin, but, yeah, that's, like, definitely Bob and that, Steve. That takes some courage because you never know. You don't know. There's, yeah. you, there's no filtering there. Somebody's going to ask you a question. You go, oh, okay. Yeah. How do I answer that one? Is, yeah. What, what's the most awkward well, <laughs> question some, you ever sometimes got? Sometimes people will try to ha like use me to share their faith, kind of. Like especially in the early days when they were, people were unclear about where I, where I was standing. Um, I guess it's m sort of my job to hit whatever pitch comes in and also i like it lets people get their hands on the energy of the show a little bit sometimes things get a little filthy or something like that and um that can be fun but also can kind of be awkward but yeah it's i enjoy it the most dreaded words ever uh not really a question more of a comment mm -hmm. <laughs> that's yeah, when yeah, you yeah, know yeah. you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. right? i get that sometimes yeah Oh, you had that off and say questions only like, yeah, yeah. there has to be a question is there a question yeah you know? i don't hear a question yeah. <laughs> After a short break, we'll have more questions for David Bazan and hear another song from Pedro the Lion. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. You said to me by the gym. And we are back. We are talking with David Bazan of Pedro the Lion at the Goose Island Tap Room. Let's jump right back into the conversation. Somebody described the, uh, the, the album cycle you're on, the pentology. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I'm going, that's wow, great. that's wow. 
pentology. I don't think I've ever heard that. That sounds like a death so, metal term. It does. Five, <laughs> it, it does. It, it almost sounds like, you know, oracular or something. Five albums, uh, you're two in. Mm-hmm. Uh, each city that you've lived in, what, what are the next three? Do you think you're going to finish the five album theme? Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, unless something like uh, I run into a bus or something, it should be fine. Like I, The next one is Santa Cruz. I'll leave it mysterious after that. But, um, yeah, and it's sort of like homes I've lived in, places... It'll it'll take a turn here and there for the maybe slightly unexpected, but yeah. It's a big project, though. It's like, obviously, you've been thinking about this for a while, and resurrecting Pedro with a Lion seemed to be part of the, the whole thing of, like, I'm going to do this project with this, it did. With this the, name I, on it. It did. The idea of the project came first, and then Pedro kind of came in, and yeah. it seemed like, oh, this is perfect, you know, a meaningful thing to do with this under this moniker, you know. And maybe it'll last past the five records. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But What's the feedback been so far? A lot of boyhood uh, memories for you, the people you lived with yeah. who had a role in the way you felt at that time. Have you gotten any feedback from, I didn't know you felt that way or, you know? It, absolutely. My sister was like, I'm just too close to it. It's like, it's a real love-hate you know, thing with the record, you know, but they're all musicians too. And so my dad was just like, those are some of the, my, the best songs you've written and for his money. And then, you know, I was asking him about first drum set, just like, yeah. how's that so cute? And he was just like, I love it. I love it so much. You know, and he was, in that case, that was like a direct memory. Like I was trying to, mm-hmm. to get it as historically kind of accurate as possible. And I was like, does, do you recognize your experience from the other side? And then he was like, yeah, like I picture it exactly. That's interesting that you say that, because I was going to say, from your perspective, that was a super meaningful moment. It was, yeah. Exchange between you and your dad. Yep. And I wonder if he felt the same way. Like sometimes you'll say to your dad like this really important memory, and he goes, I don't remember I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a big deal for him. It, it was a shift that he could sort of look to, but I don't think the stakes were anywhere near as high for him. You know, For me, it was everything. Like I had been waiting for this thing, and it, so much was hanging on it somehow. I mean, you're 12, like saxophone, oh my gosh. And I think it was fun for him. I mean, we really took a clarinet into this music shop and left with a drum set. (laughs) You know, it's a bad time, generally speaking, and it's good that it's bad, to be a man. Yep. Right? (laughs) In the Me Too era. One of the things that so affects me about Phoenix and Havasu is writing with such empathy. You know, we're not all bad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and especially teenage boys, right, have a reputation for being uh, foul and sexist and untamed yet. Mm -hmm. But you're showing uh, a different side of of kids who especially artistically inclined kids yeah have you thought about that let's 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 not all boys are bad (laughs) um yeah i haven't thought about it in that general sense but the last five ten years for people paying attention men paying attention there's been a lot of data to absorb and to learn about the experiences of other people and how we've been blind to that as white men specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think maybe from that perspective, it was a little challenging to go back and to empathize with my white male 12 year old self, because I would think like, maybe I don't deserve that mm-hmm. as like a person. It just felt like maybe a weird time to do that or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a, in a personal sense, I thought, well, me sorting this out will help me be a balanced person in the world with all the other non-white, non-men 
folks, if, you know, squaring with our own feelings and taking time to get therapy and to um, get out of the sort of like trope of like the only feelings men are allowed to have are like anger and laughing or something, I don't really know. Um, and that the whole range of feelings and sensitivities and um, vulnerabilities are important to, to feel and to take time with. Yeah, um, how to be a good person in the world. Tr yeah, trying to figure out just like how to take responsibility for my own nervous system and, and have it be well regulated because I'm aware of the trauma that came before. And so for me, it really was about, it's gonna be helpful to unpack my trauma. Um, and to do it publicly is not a necessity, obviously, but that's just how I work. And maybe that's not the right thing for some people but maybe there's some other white dudes especially mm. who can use the permission to to go there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, um, are you going to play us another song? Yes, please. Um, this is called Making the Most of It. Set it up a bit, David. How did you write this one? Thinking back to my 12-year-old self, just trying to think, like, what was that experience like? What was I feeling? What was I masking? Yeah, it just really felt like being a kid was just this really humiliating kind of experience and you just had to deal with whatever the situation was. Now you're yeah. here. Now this is where you go every day and you just try to like do your best to have a good time or to keep a stiff upper lip or whatever they say. And um, sometimes I would listen to records from back then because it was mostly Christian music during Phoenix and Havasu times. Mm -hmm. I, would, I haven't heard any of those records in like 25 years or more. Mm -hmm. Um, or 30 years, and so even though it's not my taste and I have cringy responses to it, it also, you know how music takes you back to a time and place and to smells and to things. Yeah. I, I did that too. Being in the physical space was really powerful mm -hmm. um, in, in conjuring the feelings yeah. and the memories. Mm. Yeah. If I thought I could wake up, I would. But I don't Or take a peek beneath The skin I could But what good would it do There's too much Um there and I'm trying to make the most of it not looking for a perfect fit and I can't go along to get along but let me know when I can quit making the most of it, making the most of it. Why does it always come out wrong? Needing repair It never comes to stay 
Making the most of it from uh, Pedro the Lion, the new record. Havasu? Havasu. Yeah. That's it for our session with Pedro the Lion. To see videos of their performance, visit our website, soundopinions.org. And, of course, we want to hear from you. Have you ever heard of another pentology in modern music? Share your thoughts in a voice message at our website so we can put them on the show. Mr. Cott, what have we got next week? Next week, Jim, we have a classic album dissection of Commons' Like Water for Chocolate. Uh, the Soul Aquarians era was in full uh-huh. bloom. Questlove in the house. Yeah, and, that's going to uh, be a fun one. Common working the magic. Well, then we MC. talked to Common back then, and we've resurrected some of that ancient audio. Exactly. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast where we add new songs to the Desert Island jukebox. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our new intern, Lauren Holt. We had help on the Pedro the Lion event from Adam Yaffe, Abra Richardson, and Ryan Stetzer, the latter two students at Columbia College. Our social media consultant, of course, is Katie Cobb.